Well, today we are beginning a brand new series called Baggage Claim. And if you have ever felt like someone has given you the runaround, where you are trying to get to the airport on time, you've already had a few things going wrong, and now somebody needs to stamp this and ask you a hundred questions, and they're training somebody new on the x-ray machine, and you're just wanting to pull your hair out. You just feel like, oh my goodness, why can't we get on with this? Well, in our series, we're going to look at the fact that all of us carry a certain amount of baggage with us into life, into relationships, into work, into marriage, into family. And yet rarely can we identify our own baggage. Now we can identify everybody else's baggage. Go to a family reunion. Yep, he's got that one. She's got that one. They've been carrying that one for a decade. We can identify other people's baggage. But today, one of the bags we're going to look at is actually the bag of deflection. Deflection is what happens when you're not able to see your own baggage because you're still focused on other people's. And if you look at patterns in your own life, deflection is this real art of hiding your baggage behind the baggage of others. Somebody tries to bring up in your life an issue that maybe you ought to think about. Give you some feedback that maybe is negative about a bad habit or a bad tendency. And immediately, instead of dealing with your baggage, you immediately hide it and emphasize all of their baggage. And until they deal with all their baggage, you don't have to deal with yours. And if you're really, really careful, you can listen and you can observe a pattern in the past. But most people don't take the time to think about their past or reflect or pause. To go, you know what? Yeah, my parents, they never really got me. They were just always really critical. And they may be. And you say, yeah, I remember when I went to college, I had that first roommate. That first roommate, he was just really really self-centered, always nagging on me about stuff. In fact, I went through, let's see, how many semesters? One, two, three, four. I went through eight roommates in college, and all of them had an issue. One was self-centered, one was a slob, one was a crab. Now, I remember my first girlfriend, oh my goodness, needy, 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 just always needy, wanted something from somebody. No wonder we broke up. Oh, my ex? Yeah, say, so, yeah, my ex-wife, is she really? My ex-husband, total disrespectful, always trying to get too sensitive, fill in the blank. Oh, I remember my coach in college, he just really didn't understand my potential. He really didn't get it and didn't give me real opportunities the way I needed it. Oh, yeah, 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 my first boss, yeah, I would have done so much better there if they'd give me more responsibility. Here's a person who their whole life, feedback's been coming their way of things they might need to change, modify, think about, reflect on. And yet every time feedback comes from any angle, they deflect it, hiding their baggage behind the baggage and the labels of everyone around them. Now, I have never yet met a human being who doesn't deflect. Some people deflect a little, and some have made it into an art form. The only wise thing for you and I to do is to presume, to presume we deflect so that we can maybe have a chance of examining it and getting free from it. If you don't presume you have it, I promise you, you'll never deal with it. You'll just keep hiding it behind other people's baggage, in your marriage, in your sports team, in your family. And here's a quick test to know if you deflect. 
When you hear, you hide. When you hear feedback, you immediately hide. You pull back. What about you? You get defensive. And this tendency in human beings to deflect is what the opening chapters of the Bible are about. Deflection. When we hear feedback of what we've done wrong, we immediately hide, deflect it, don't want to take responsibility for it. It says, the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened. And they knew that they were naked. They knew there was a problem. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They know something's wrong, they're going to cover it up. We cover it up with excuses and rationalization. We cover it by blaming and finger pointing. We hear and we hide. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the coolness of the day. And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They heard feedback, they knew they did something wrong, and they immediately hid. Do you welcome critique? Do you welcome critique from those closest to you? Sometimes it's easier to hear it from a boss or a colleague than it is from your spouse or your kids or your parents. Deflection is what happens when you hear feedback. Instead of welcoming it, you hide from it or deflect from it. So I want to give you three steps. And these three steps are hard. This is one of the hardest things. We're beginning this series in this week because this is the hardest thing. You can't deal with the other bags if you can't deal with this tendency of deflection. The first step is you need to learn how to x-ray your bags, right? When you bring your bags to the airport now, what is the first thing they do? That everybody x-rays them. We've got to look into this. We've got to check this stuff out. We've got to see what's going on here. And if you want to overcome your own professional lid... You've got to deal with deflection. If you want to become the best version of yourself, you're going to have to deal with deflection. And part of that is x-raying, which is looking inside your behaviors. Why do I do what I do? Why do I get so defensive? Why is it so hard for me to hear feedback? Why am I always blaming my boss or blaming a company? If you don't take the time to observe you're doing it hard enough, then x-ray and ask yourself, why do I do what I do? you're not going to find the freedom to be the best version of yourself. So notice, one of the ways God helps them x-ray their motivations is by asking them questions. Same thing we need to do for ourselves. Are you asking yourself questions? Why is it it's so hard to hear critique from other people? God shows up and he says questions. Hey, where, where are you? God knew where they were. He's asking the question on their behalf, not his own. He asks more questions. So he said, I, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid. Oh, so what's really going on behind his actions is fear, shame, guilt. If we x-ray his behavior, we find out fear and insecurity and guilt is what's motivating his deflection. So God asked him more questions. Well, who told you that? Have you eaten from the tree? Did you do something you know you're not supposed to do? Now, once you recognize that you deflect, then you need to notice, okay, what happened yesterday when we had that conversation with my parents and I got so mad and slammed the door? What happened when my son threw a temper and I suddenly lost it? And I said, well, the problem was you. We've got to identify it and then say, what was going on inside of me? Which is going to require you to get to know your own soul. Ask yourself questions. A classic example in psychology is what's called the family scapegoat. 
Family scapegoat is when a child, for example, is having trouble. They're angry, they're mad, they're frustrated, they're slamming doors. And the parent is anxious. Because when I have unhappy kids, it means I must be a bad parent. That's the internal. So you're anxious because you feel like if I was a good parent, my kids would be behaved. This is especially true in marriage. Often I have trouble listening to my wife when she's upset because what I really fear is, oh my goodness, if I was a good husband, my wife wouldn't be upset. Instead of being able to be with her in the moment, I deflect. Well, that's not true about me or about the situation because what's going on inside of me is anxiety. And if I was a good husband, you would be happy. You're not happy, therefore I must be a good husband. And in my mind, I make it about me when it really should be about her. The family scapegoat, though, is what happens when a child is throwing a fit. And the parent doesn't know what to do. And so they go, well, the, the child's got a problem. We need to get the child Medicaid. We need to get the child counseling. There's something wrong with them because it can't be me. But really, you're feeling inadequate, ill-equipped to know how to handle the situation. That especially moves into more abusive circumstances. Uh, here's an illustration. And the illustration sort of plays itself out in a lot of people in your life. The person who's a deflector, you ask them, you confront them, you try and get them to own something they've done. Hey, you remember that meeting? You remember what happened last week when? And immediately they push your buttons and test you and do something to drive you crazy. Like imagine they break your leg as a metaphor. They break your leg and you're like, oh, you're arriving in pain. And they're like, well, somebody's got an anger problem, don't they? Somebody's not very patient with their words. And you're like, you broke my leg. A master deflector is so good that when you try and get them to own their stuff, they will push and push and push you until you blow up, and then they turn their guns on you and say, don't you have a problem? And it's a way in which they can stop from dealing with their own issues by blaming you for yours, by creating and pushing your buttons in such a way that it's now all about you. Because they refuse to look at their own guilt, their own shame, their own fear, and their own anxiety. Now, most people in general don't want to do the tough work of x-raying their motivations and asking themselves, why do I do what I do? We deflect often to save face. I want to look good as a husband, as a boss, as an employee, and that feedback says I'm not as good as I think I am, so I've got to save face by deflecting. Now, on a more humorous note, I want you to watch this next video, and I want you to imagine... You've had a circumstance like this. You might see yourself in grandma. You might see yourself in the daughter. But here is a genius level deflector that I think we've all encountered one time or another. Let's watch. Let's cut to the chase. Mom, where were you the night of August 24th? You sent Anna Beth over to my house for the night. Exactly. So explain this. There's a Snickers and a Reese cup. She loves those. It's sugar. And according to section 14-2 of mom's rule book, there's a strict ban on sugar in this house. But sweetie, we weren't at your house. So you want to play that game? All right, mom. Tell me, what was my bedtime when I was Annabeth's age? Nine o'clock. Uh-huh. Now, can you read the timestamp for me on this selfie? You know I can't read without my glasses. 10.30 p.m. 
You can't believe everything you see on the internet. You posted this on your own Facebook. I don't see what the problem is. I'm her grandma. It's my job to spoil her. That's it. Kevin! Okay, Grandma. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I brought you some chocolate chip cookies. They're on the counter. Cookies? Awesome. Make sure Annabeth gets some. They're her favorite. No. No! Mom, you leave me no choice. If you're going to watch Annabeth, then you have to follow our rules. That means no sugar. It means be in bed by nine. It means eating what everyone else eats for dinner and no more than an hour of TV. And are you even listening to me right now? Look at this. Do you think Annabeth would like this? Yes, she would look adorable in that. I know. That's why I bought it. Now, if you'll please excuse me, I've promised Annabeth to go get ice cream. Annabeth! Sweetie, it's time for ice cream! Well, well. All right, so maybe you see a little of yourself in there, but um, whether you're the one trying to confront somebody who's always got a reason that doesn't apply to them, or whether you've been the person that there's a reason why the rules don't apply to me. Why is it? What is it, the anxiety? I'm above the rules. It doesn't count. We're going to have to get to the place where we begin to x-ray our baggage, look at our own motivation. Secondly, we need to recognize your own personal piece of baggage. What is the particular style or type of deflection you use? So I want to give you some examples, but Im- imagine looking through suitcases and you want to identify which one's yours by, by, by the tags, right? We're going to try and recognize which bags belong to you. These are all different phrases that are used for deflection, and you might hear yourself, oh, I say that. Now, you're especially going to say, my husband says that, my son says that, my daughter says that, grandma says that, mom says that. I don't want you to do that. That's deflection. We're trying to identify your, you, your deflection technique. What is the bag that belongs to you? What have you heard yourself say? Here's some examples. Well, I guess I don't do anything right. You confront me. Instead of hearing this is an isolated thing I need to work on, I say, I'm in general being criticized. I'm a victim here. And therefore, oh my goodness, you're the meanie for even bringing this up. I don't do anything right. Now, the version of that is the flip side. I guess I'm never good enough. Sure could use some encouragement, said this kind of criticism. And no matter how much encouragement people give or don't give, your gut instinct when critique comes is, I'm just never good enough. Third, I can't do any more. I've just given, here's our marriage. I give, 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 and you want more, more, more. I can't do any more. I've adapted everything I give. There's no more room to adapt. Really? Wow. It's a deflection technique. I can't do any more. Why is everybody always picking on me? Charlie Brown, he's a clown. I'm being picked on here. My boss is picking on me. My colleagues are picking on me. The coach is picking on me. I've just been picked on by life. Pick, 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 pick. Next. This is a self-righteous piece. I'm talking about this a little bit more in a moment. This is the idea that your self-image of yourself, and this is almost everyone who gets into marriage and family, they, they basically believe I'm basically a good person. In contrary to all evidence around them. And yes, you are basically a good person as long as you get what you want. Me too. In the context of relationship and marriage, you don't always get what you want. And you know what you find out? You're not basically a good person. 
But that self-image you've created is so part of your identity that when somebody brings critique to you, you really at your core x-ray belief is, I would never do that. Listen, um, parent-teacher conference, turns out that your son or daughter lied. My kids don't lie! Really? Really? Because mine did. And mine do. And I do occasionally. And so the Bible gives a very unique perspective that you can finally be honest. That, you know what, I probably did that. I do a lot of stupid things. You're much more open to feedback because you realize, I believe in a a God who had to die for me because I do stupid things. And this self Righteousness that I would never do that and my kids would never obey begins to become disintegrated when you understand your unbrokenness. A few more. These are all you statements. These are classic deflections by starting with the word you. Somebody brings up an issue in your life, your boss, your mother-in-law, and your first instinct is, well, you don't give me any time. You don't give me any encouragement. You don't give me any space. You don't give me any. Fill in the blank. I hide my baggage behind yours. Well, you remember the time you? Well, yeah, but right now we're talking about what happened a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, but let's talk what you did five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. And you bring up all the dirty laundry from the past. You're picking on me. You're the real problem. You made me feel. Well, why'd you lose your temper? You made me lose my temper. You made me angry. Nobody makes you angry. You only make yourself angry. So there's a lot up there. What is one you've heard, not your spouse, not your kids, yourself say and make a note of that because if you notice it you could then go now that i've recognized my baggage i can start x-raying my motivations again this is exactly what happens in the bible in the bible you see god beginning to help adam and eve deal with their baggage and it's classic finger pointing look at this deflection god shows up and says hey uh, did you eat from the uh, tree i told you not to eat and the man said the woman You gave me, made me do it. Deflection. But didn't you eat of it too? You woman, you, you you didn't put me here. Tree, you made it, you fall. Nothing to see here, nothing to see. Wow! He hears and he hides. So, God shows up. Eve, out of the pool, out, out. All right, I just heard that you're to blame here. Let's talk about it. What's going on? What have you done? Classic question. The woman said, well, the snake did it. I mean, the devil made me do it. The Satan deceived me. I mean, what was I supposed to do? I mean, I mean, doesn't everybody have to respond to the talking snake? Deflection. One blames the devil. One blames God. One blames the spouse. It's built into us. And one of the reasons God's main message of the Bible comes is to help you and I deal with our deflection because whatever the topic is you're fighting about at work, at home, the real issue that's keeping you from making progress is deflection. If you saw the article last week about Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt said that after his divorce from Angeline Jolene, he finally had to get serious about his problem, his anger problem, his alcohol problem. He said he started going to AA. And for a guy whose whole career was based on saving face, looking good, reputation above all. And if your life's all about reputation above all, it's hard to own that you don't live up to your reputation. And I promise you, you are not as good as your reputation. I'm not. The closer you get to me, the more broken you see I am. So keep your distance. I look really good from a distance. And Brad Pitt said when he started going to AA, he was amazed at the honesty He said, I've never, ever, ever been in an environment where men 
would gather together and talk about their baggage and their junk. With as little judgmentalism as I'd ever seen, people really talked about where they were broken, what they had done, how they had failed. I never experienced anything like that. So the Bible offers two unique perspectives. Number one, it lets you own your baggage. Now, the downside is religion does not help you. So a lot of people, they start with Jesus and the Bible and they end up religious. Religion will just burn you to the ground because you'll start saying, I'm a Christian. My kids are raised as Christians. We're Christian parents. Our kids don't smoke marijuana. No, no, no. We don't fight. No, I would never be self-centered. Nonsense. Jesus died for all that and more. So when you really begin to not just be a Christian, but live out these messages, you begin to say, oh my goodness, I'm probably wrong here. I'm probably going to discover in this conversation yet another reason why Jesus had to die for me. And it creates humility. Which is why the third step is probably the most important. And that is we need a baggage cover. Something to cover up everything we've done wrong. Everything we've broken. God shows up after Adam and Eve are making all these excuses. And says that God creates a covering for them. It's really interesting. He makes a tunic for them because they feel naked and guilty. So God, the Lord God himself, made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, as this begins to develop through the Bible, this is called the grace of God. And the ultimate covering or clothing is when Jesus dies. He says, I'm dying for everything you've done wrong. Let me help explain this with the metaphor of this baggage claim. In your life, you have lots of bags full of junk. And you're embarrassed by some things. You've got secrets. I've got secrets. And you don't want people to know about your secrets. And so, it, like taking your bags into, uh, into TSA, you're like, oh, don't look in that bag. Why? There's a sword in there. Oh, oh and, and, and there's some dirty laundry in there. I didn't have a chance to wash some stuff. I don't want you pulling that out in front of everybody. Oh, and I've got an unfinished brief, legal brief. And I don't like people to see stuff I'm not finished with. And, and, I, and I've got an unfinished uh, PowerPoint deck. And I don't want you pulling my computer out and seeing that. I still need to put in some clip art. Whatever it is, you've got stuff in your life that's unfinished you don't want people to see, stuff that's dangerous that you don't want to admit about yourself, dirty laundry you don't want people to know. This covering of grace that God offers Adam and Eve is what's finalized at Jesus' death on the cross is that he covers you. And the covering of grace is that God says, I know everything you have done, I know everything you will do. I've looked through all your bags, and it's bad. Cheer up, though. You're worse than you think. That's the main message of the Bible. You are far worse than you think, and I've covered it all. I still love you. I still accept you. And I've covered everything we're going to find in your bags. Now, when that happens, two things occur. Number one, you don't need to cover everything up anymore before God. He already knows. He ain't fooling anybody except yourself. When you understand everything you've done, past, present, future, is already forgiven, you can start opening these bags and you start going, oh, I'm kind of scared. Never told this to anybody before. Never told God this. Never admitted this to even myself. But God says, I know it's in there. I've already forgiven you for it. I accept you even knowing about your secrets and your swords and your dirty laundry. You're able to start sorting through your bags because you've been unconditionally loved and accepted. When you have that covering, you start digging into your laundry. 
because you're not finding stuff that's like shocking to you. You're like, wow, something else God already forgave me for when I trusted him to be my forgiver. Love of a father who knows your secrets and still accepts you is highly motivating. And only the Bible, in contrast to religion, you better clean up your own act. That's just going to keep you hiding your bags. Grace, you're forgiven for everything you do, finally gives you the freedom and acceptance to bring your baggage out into the open. The love of God is a deep, deep motivator. I don't know if you know an old, old movie. Well, old to me, so it might not be old to you, but on Golden Pond. And Jane Fonda, in the movie, she had a you know, famous dad, Henry Fonda, who's known as a great actor, but very, very stoic, very emotionally distant. But he never took the time to see that as a problem. X-ray it, figure out why he couldn't be emotionally connected to his daughter. He never really figured out how that might be a deflection mechanism because he was uncomfortable around emotions. But she desperately wanted to hear dad say, I love you. So dad got cast in the the movie on Golden Pond. And when she was offered the script, she saw that in the script, he has to turn to his daughter and say, I love you. She took the part. She knew her dad was a great actor. And even to have dad act it, she so longed to hear those words that her dad would turn to her in character as the daughter and say, I love you. First time she'd ever heard it. Our hearts are so longing, thirsting for unconditional love from our Heavenly Father that when you don't have it, you try and earn it, you hide the bad stuff in your life, but you really want it. The second thing this baggage cover does, this baggage cover of grace, it it separates you from your baggage. I am not my baggage. That's why Jesus came. He died for the baggage so that he could rescue you. Take the example. Whether your bag is fear or maybe it's something good. Work. I am my work. If you identify yourself as your work, I am my work, then when somebody's criticizing my work, they're not criticizing my work, they're criticizing me. It's no wonder I'm defensive. Right? Because you're not just criticizing what I did yesterday. You're criticizing who I am. I am my work. You're not just giving me hints on how to parent my kids, mother, mother mother-in-law. No, 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 no. You're saying I'm a bad mom. So baggage often has a bad connotation. But think of baggage in a positive way, which is a bag is not me. It's my caboose. It's something I carry, but it's not me. When you understand that God made you as a human being, you're far more than what you do, far more than what you wear, far more than what you, uh, your bank account size, far more than your territory, far more than your title. These are important things. These are good things, but they're not you. That distinction that you can be fully forgiven, fully loved, and you are not your work, you are not your status, you are not other people's approval, you're not how you're sitting in the pecking order of good moms and good dads. When you see that distinction occur, you can be more open because now you're not criticizing me when you criticize my work. It still stings a bit, but we're just talking about my work. We're just talking about ways that my kids might be able to be steered a little bit better. We're just talking about ways in which, even though I don't feel approved and I want your approval, some ways in which I might be, be able to be more effective. So the Bible allows you to turn the most important thing in your life, 
becomes God. Not your work, not your status, not your money. So now, instead of this becoming your idol, as the Bible might describe it, an idol basically means I've taken something good and made it me, I am not that. I am separate from my baggage. Because I'm separate from my baggage, I can now hear critique easier. Still stings a bit, but you're not criticizing me, you're criticizing something I do. Or something that's important to me, but it's not vital to me. I don't know if you saw um, Downey Jr. was interviewed. Endgame made like a billion dollars, the movie, the summer. And he made like 50 million up front and residuals beyond that. And as he was talking about his next step, like how do you compete with your next movie? Your last movie was the number one selling movie of all time. How do you compete with that? What's the chances your next one's going to... He says, I've been wrestling with my next step in my career. I had to come to this conclusion as I move forward from Avengers. I am not my work. I'm not my work. It's important to me. I enjoy it. I like it. But I'm not my work. So now I can feel criticism about it. I can make decisions that aren't driven by it because I'm not what I do. In her book, Radical Candor, Kim Scott writes about a time she was giving a presentation at Google. She finished the presentation and her boss came up to her and said, hey, I'd like to give you some feedback. <laughs> you did a really good job. Oh, thank goodness, I did a really good job. All right. Oh. But I'd like to talk about some other things. Your presentation was good. Your mastery of the subject was good. The way you interacted and answered questions was good. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Here it comes, here it comes. But, but, but. I would like you to work on a few things. You use an, um, and er a lot. I'd like you to meet with a speech coach to help you so you can be even more effective. She was able to invite radical candor by recognizing that she's not her work. Her work's important and she wants to get better at it, but radical candor is invited into your life when you're able to distinguish between you and what you do. How open are you to feedback? How open are you to hearing the ways in which you might need to change or modify yourself. And this is especially hard in marriage. Just why here's my challenge for us today. I'd like you to identify one piece of baggage. Just one. Could be one of the, the phrases I had on the tags, could be one piece that I've mentioned as I've been talking. But I want you to identify one of your deflection bags, one of your tendencies that you heard today. For you, not other people. And next time you hear yourself say that, feel that anxiety, feel that insecurity, I'd like you to be curious rather than deflecting. What does that sound like? This is going to make the people in your life fall over, by the way. So next time they bring, hey, I really was, you know, they're walking on eggshells because they're used to how you react, and they bring it up, and you find yourself about to, you didn't, you not, I didn't, uh, poor me, I never do anything right. I'd like you to be curious. He's taking a deep breath. Instead of saying, you never, you say, tell me more about that. Help me understand what you're saying, Chad told me to say this. And you're going to get to the place, but it takes time. When you separate yourself from your work, when you understand this message of the Bible is very unique. I mean, it's very, very practical in your marriage. When you understand everything you've done has been covered and you receive that gift in your life, you're going to be much more open to feedback because you realize how broken you are and you realize you've already been forgiven. 
Now help me understand what, you, what happened. It doesn't mean they're 100% right, but you're at least open. You're curious about what's going on. You're curious about what you might have done. I want to think about that. Tell me a little bit more. Okay, that's all I can take right now. I want to think about that. That's okay too. You know what our marriages need? Less deflection. You know what our families need? Less deflection. You know what our business departments need? Less deflection. I heard the story of Jonathan Gravenor. He wrote a book called The Other Side of Ego. He was a well-known television personality in Australia, Southeast Asia. He came home one day. He'd been so busy building his career, he'd become distant in his marriage and with his kids. He sat down at the kitchen table and he said, I've got horrible news. I have throat cancer and it's terminal. His daughter, teenage daughter, pushed her chair away from the table and said, Whether you live or die, I don't really care. And she stormed off into her bedroom. He got up, pounded on the door. I can't believe you'd say that to me. And Jonathan says that night he laid in bed in what he calls the arrogance of his beliefs. How dare she not know how I provided for her, taken care of her, that I'm in a moment of my life's on the line and she would say that. And then he said, I thought to myself, when's the last time I told her I loved her? He couldn't think of the last time. When's the last time I told my daughter I'm proud of her, held her, protected her? He couldn't think of one. He'd been so busy prioritizing other things, his ego kept from seeing it until he was faced with this level of fear. He said, even then, this would have been a great opportunity to invite my family to be close, but I just couldn't. I didn't know how to do it. I went to the doctor and they cut a 12-inch incision from the right side of my ear all the way down to my throat and I prayed to the God I did not believe in that the lump would be gone. They removed a golf ball-sized lump, but the doctor said it wasn't gone and I needed to go through chemo. And I was terrified. Couldn't admit the time, but I just pushed people away. After I came from chemo, instead of going home to an empty room because everybody was at work or school, I found myself wandering through the city. And I saw this homeless man with a sign out that said, help. And in my arrogance, I'm like, help? I'm dying. I'm terminal. You know who needs help? I need help. And I walked on by. About a week later, I had another treatment. Found myself wandering the same street, saw the same guy. He had a dog in front of him. I happened to say, hey, what's the dog's name? Almost intuitively. And he said, well, he's a she and her name's Molly. And it must be something special about you. Do you need anything? Because my dog doesn't go up to just anybody. He's like, nice sales pitch. This is how you get money off people. Use the dog, huh? Kind of dismissed him again, but he seemed kind and warm. Came out of chemo a few weeks later and again saw this man there. This time he bought him a sandwich. He said, hey, brought you a sandwich. He said, well, I've got a rule that I never eat a sandwich unless I share it. Will you sit with me? Jonathan said he sat in the middle of this busy street with people moving everywhere, fearful of what his life would behold. And somebody he'd avoided his whole life, he actually found a friend, somebody who seemed to care about him for him. He finished eating that sandwich and again had his next chemo treatment and it was struck that he actually was opening up to a homeless man of all things. 
He wandered and found him. And again, he was so excited to see him again. He says, hey, hey, I bought some chocolates for you. And he knew these chocolates were expensive to Doug, but not necessarily to him. But he said, all right, well, tell you what, thanks for the chocolates. He said, but I have a rule now, too. I never eat them alone. Can I share them with you? Doug said, sure. And he says, well, thanks, friend. Let's sit together. And this homeless man, Doug, began to well up with tears. He said, friend, wow, I don't have any friends. I certainly don't have important friends like you. Jonathan said he sat down that day and he's never felt more important in his life. He said, I spent my whole life trying to be the busy people walking back and forth to business and, and to projects and to next things. But here I was sharing a moment where I was honored and cared for for who I was. He said, I never would have imagined that God would use what turned out not to be a homeless guy begging for money, but a homeless guy raising money for other charities by the time he discovers everything about this guy. But God used this man in his life to begin me getting comfortable with people, feeling what love and genuine care looks like. I began to restore things with my wife. I began to open up about my fears. I figured if I could tell a homeless guy, maybe I could tell my spouse. I began to rebuild my relationship with my daughter. I began to face my fears and invite other people in the way I had in this coincidence with this man. And I began to change. And my relationship with my wife is better than ever. My relationship with my daughter is better than ever. But I had to deal with the arrogance of my belief that I had deflected their needs for years because I was right and they were wrong. You ever had that moment at the end of the day where you and your spouse are fighting? And you're fighting so much that you're on the end of the bed. Like if you tilt just a little bit, you're going to fall off. You're on the edge of the mattress because you want to be as far away from them as possible. They're so unreasonable. And that's fine because they're on the end of their bed because you are so unreasonable. The power of grace and God is that somebody's got to go first. Who's going to move toward each other and own their stuff? To heal the hurt and brokenness. This next song speaks to exactly that. Let's listen. So what's going to motivate you to roll to the middle? What's going to motivate you to even want to be curious about feedback? There was a God who didn't do anything wrong. And he went first. He rolled to the middle. To reconcile with us. To restore relationship with us. That's the motivation. Until you realize that someone perfect rolled to the middle for you, you're not going to want to roll to the middle or be curious with someone who's very not perfect. So maybe today you want to accept that covering I talked about. So you can have the motivation to restore your relationships, to be open to feedback, and to know you can be separated from what you do. Let me lead you into prayer. Maybe you just want to say these words to God in your own way. Say, God, cover me. I want that covering that I can know I'm accepted regardless of what I've done in the past, present, and future. I want who I am and how you see me to be more important than my work, than other people's approval, 
or my status. God, I admit I'm broken. I admit it to you. Teach me how to admit it to other people. Thank you for rolling to the middle for me. Surround me with people in my life that would help me initiate grace and mercy and forgiveness in them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here at Horizon today. My name is John Kirby. I'm the Connections Pastor at Horizon. And uh, just sitting here, it's pretty amazing that Chad, who planned this message uh, many months ago, literally, um, we're, we're having something tonight for men that is just perfectly aligned with what Chad was talking about. If you prayed that prayer, um, we're bringing in Ken Kington. Um, he lives in Atlanta. He's a Christian comedian. And we're doing something that I think a lot of churches would think kind of crazy. We're paying him to give up his comedian gigs and come and talk to our men for six Sunday nights. And uh, men who um, maybe can't do Sunday nights, maybe you're a Monday morning person, he's going to do Sunday night, Monday morning for six weeks and talk about uh, a man and his traps. Now, I know no man wants to wallow in his traps. It's more talking about that significance and sense of success that God's wired in our hearts to try to achieve. But, um, you know, Chad, Kenny, who just walked off, there's probably once a month we have an older man um, come up to us and say, man, I wish I knew 20 or 30 years ago these stupid traps that are so similar to men that I get caught up in. I'd like to relive with my kids, with my wife, I'm making up for lost time now. But please, if you're a man and you're here, hearing my voice, think about coming tonight. You don't even have to sign up. Just show up because I know men don't like to sign up. And uh, just show up and, and be surprised that maybe Ken will make you laugh, uh, see some things, but also give you hope and give you some practical steps to take. And for women, we haven't forgotten about you. This is really the perfect time for you to go to our website. There's a couple evening offerings and a morning offering. Uh, we really want to invest in you as well. So um, after the Bengals opener today, um, go online, sign up for something, or men just show up tonight or tomorrow morning. Thanks for being at Horizon.